Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. In April 2014, as part of the MacArthur Memorial's 50th anniversary commemoration, the memorial hosted a special speaker series. One of the speakers, Nimrod Frazier, author of the book Send the Alabamians, World War I Fighters in the Rainbow Division, spoke about Douglas MacArthur and his time with the 42nd Rainbow Division in France. Mr. Frazier is a Korean War veteran and a recipient of the Silver Star. He is also a member of the Alabama Business Hall of Fame. Will and Scotty's time with MacArthur at the Rainbow was the most important part of their lives. Having left for the war as 19-year-old grandchildren of the Confederacy, they returned home in 1919 as Americans with a full respect from the nation and the world. They were like no others in the town that raised them, no longer just citizens of a state. The men of the 167th Infantry were forever part of something greater than the Alabama. Without a pulpit of their own, they believed that MacArthur spoke for them. They saw him as representing the soldiers of the Rainbow Division to the world. Will and Scotty had been in all its operations other than when Will was in the hospital with wounds received at the battle at Crowrie's Farm. Their combat service was the highest part of their lives. None could challenge that, and no detractor of MacArthur's could ever pry away their loyalty to him. Some writers describe MacArthur as a public relations agent. He had indeed been in charge of public relations and censorship for the Secretary of War Baker's office, and there's no denying that the man's cleverness in turning situations to his own advantage was outstanding. When a reporter commented that the division covered the country like a rainbow, MacArthur captured the name, making it the division identifier forever. Called arrogant by others, the man did not know shame when it came to claiming the advantages of being an army aristocrat. He challenged high decision makers, such as when he lobbied at Chamont to stop a move to turn the 42nd Division into a replacement depot. It was he who ordered the Valley Forge march in the worst weather in French memory, a tactical move of troops in which the division carried everything it owned. Only enemy opposition could have made it more daunting. According to Will and Scotty, the episode required extraordinary physical commitment and caused suffering at the sacrificial level. It was not designed to make commanders popular with soldiers, but it brought everyone to the higher level of toughness and togetherness, such as hard training always does. The sector around Baccarat was quiet when the rainbow moved into it as part of a French corps under a French command and French tutelage. But that changed greatly when the Americans arrived. MacArthur signed orders for patrols to go out from every battalion, every night, all night, while those battalions were rotated to the front. And almost all officers and men were required to participate in patrols. Long-distance patrols set new records for penetration, not just limited to reconnaissance. There were ambushes and raids in German trenches that were exceedingly dangerous. 
prisoners were taken. There was hand-to-hand -hand fighting. In the process, the Rainbow was declared first-class combat division. This was of enormous interest to the German Army and to the French as they looked at an untested division of which Douglas MacArthur was chief of staff and, in many respects, the leading officer in the division. They learned that it was a matter of kill or be killed. It was the first American division to be put in charge of a sector, a combat sector, by the French Army. In the Lorraine mud, the Rainbow suffered casualties of 81 officers and 1,815 men and 110 days there. From Baccarat, the division marched to its railheads, fully ready to fight. When boarding cards at Vitre la Ville that would take them to the Champagne, a little-known episode shook Colonel MacArthur. General J.J. Pershing had arrived unannounced, as was his custom. He dressed MacArthur down in front of officers and men lined up on the quay. The chief of staff had to take it when the senior officer called the division a disgrace, poorly disciplined, a filthy rabble. MacArthur tried to stand up to him, telling the general that his men were just out of the trenches after long periods of very dangerous patrolling, but Pershing appeared unimpressed. MacArthur knew that promotions had gone to Robert Lee Bullard and First Captain West Point First Captain Charles P. Summerall and others of that ilk. All were older men than the colonel in both age and service. Everything in the promotions area depended on, on Pershing. He, had, he was very demanding, and he had to be pleased. But there was no time to dwell on events having to do with, the, with promotion. And the rainbow was soon to face the great German offensive to take Paris, the last German push for victory. It was to be the battle that Germany thought it would win. Had Pershing's tirade been because he believed the colonel unworthy of promotion? The win at Chamont, the win at Champagne, turned out spectacularly well, and the entire rainbow contributed in that great battle. The sky was filled with airplanes. Artillery produced drum fire heard in Paris, and attackers from Germany were slowed down and stopped. The French generals and the French polar had nothing but praise for the American fighting qualities. Paris was saved. The tide of battle had turned in three days. Division casualties were 1,567, or 152% of those received in five months earlier in the Lorraine. MacArthur wrote, the Champagne was the high water mark of the war. If it had not been fought, there would have been no counter blow, and the war would have dragged on for an infinite period. The backbone of the German army was broken in Champagne, and it passed from an offensive status to a defensive status. In many respects, MacArthur said it was the most critical battle of the war. The National Guard Division, 42nd, marched out of that chalk-like battlefield at Champagne in the pre-dawn dark, July 20th, 1918, and one of its soldiers said, when the moon rose that night, we pulled out covered with chalk and glory. Supreme Allied Commander Foch and the French generals considered the rainbow to have validated fighting qualities. It was ordered into the new offensive originating at Chateau Thierry, and the trip to get there was special. A soldier recalled, every town through which we passed was hung with American flags. Women and children cheered and threw kisses. We hit the next line in a swell frame of mind. The division was placed in the 6th French Army under General Jean-Marie Joseph Doggett's 1st Corps. 
The division was under American General Hunter Liggett. It was an arrangement in which French generals controlled the major operation, but American officers led the American outfits. This time, the 42nd was committed to battle piecemeal over several days. Its first and only experience of being thrown into battle pell-mell by units instead of getting ready to strike a united blow against the enemy. The Alabama and our regiments went by truck on the all-night trip from Lafert to Epides, then marched in the rain to Kupu, reaching there around 7 o'clock on the morning of July 25, 1918. By noon, the 168th had moved to the Bois de Ferre. In an approach march, is the combat-ready 167th Infantry left Coupal at 2.30 that afternoon and passed through German and American dead on their way to Croix Rouge Farm. From the time of leaving Coupal on foot, neither the 167th nor the 168th Regiment had guides or knew where the, where the other was. At dusk that evening, the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the Alabama Regiment took up lines as skirmishers. Beyond the skirmish line could be seen the German-occupied stone complex, the Croix Farm, a huge walled compound of stone and mortar, medieval in style and fortress-like in appearance. It offered the Germans excellent cover and stood at the apex of a V of trenches holding heavy machine guns. The 84th Brigade expected artillery support from the U.S. 28th Division, but it did not arrive. The 167th reached the front on schedule, but the 168th was late. At daybreak on July 26, the 168th's 1st and 2nd Battalions did not know their position guard to each other. The 1st Battalion Commander, Major Emory C. Worthington, could not be found and his men did not know their orders. Both the Alabama and our regiments worked to establish flank contact that morning, but they did not connect until in the afternoon. By then, the Irons had been decimated in the woods by German machine gun fire. Shortly thereafter, the Alabama 1st and 3rd Battalions suffered massive casualties in a series of attacks on Croix's farm. By 7 p.m. on July 26, a combined force of the depleted 167th and 168th swept forward at Bannett Point and finally took the farmhouse. In his handwritten draft of reminiscences preserved in this very Norfolk archives, MacArthur would later write, it was presumed the Germans were pulling back and our orders were to pass, but the high command was just in error. The Germans were not retreating with only a small rear guard to cover their withdrawal. Instead, strong forces had settled down on rugged slopes and in protecting woods. In the attack at Croix Farm, 162 officers and men of the Alabama 167th Infantry died. The list included five officers, two of them were company commanders, 20 platoon leaders were wounded, and 60 men from the 168th, and 283 German bodies were counted, many having died from bayonet wounds. More than 400 dead surrounded that farmhouse in a battle that lasted not quite four and a half hours. Colonel Douglas MacArthur wrote, the 167th Alabama, assisted by the, on the left by the 168th Iowa, had stormed and captured the Croix Farm, in a manner which for its gallantry I do not believe has been surpassed in military history. The entire rainbow was then committed to cross the Ark River in its usual order of regiments from left to right, the 166th, 65th, the 167th, and 168th. Throughout the battle to come, the rainbow would work together, but each regiment, and the units within it would pursue a number of individual objectives. 
They began as one, though, with a General Rainbow Division advance on July 28th at 9 a.m. after having fought the battle at Croish Farm on July 26th, two days before. Sergei was the 84th Brigade's principal objective. Due to the heavy losses of the 167th and 168th in the previous couple of days, two battalions of the U.S. 4th Division's 47th Infantry were attached, each one to the understrength regiment. One of these battalions was nearly eradicated in a premature attack on Sergei that had not been approved by the 84th Brigade commander. Brigadier General Robert A. Brown, West Point, 1884, was criticized for the 47th Infantry attack on Sergei without orders. A telegram on July 31 from General James W. McAndrew, Chief of Staff, AEF Headquarters, to the Commanding General of I Corps, Major General Hunter Liggett, announced Brown's sacking. Major General Charles Menaher, MacArthur's boss, had recommended the relief, and Liggett had approved it. Menaher, who claimed firsthand knowledge of the situation, said Brown had collapsed and was no longer capable of commanding a combat brigade. On August 2nd, the 42nd Division commander started the process of removing Brigadier General Brown and temporarily approving Douglas MacArthur as the 84th Brigade commander while the brigade was involved in the present combat. A few days earlier, Pershing's headquarters at Chamont had ordered Colonel Douglas MacArthur's return to the United States, and Brown's removal saved MacArthur from temporarily being sent home to a training job and gave him an opportunity to command a hot brigade in combat. Rather than going to Fort Meade, Maryland to train a new brigade, MacArthur would become the youngest general officer in the Army at age 37. Aside from the debate over who was where and when, the testimony of MacArthur, then Chief of Staff of the Rainbow, ruled Brown unfit for leadership. A 59-page dossier was published for Brown's relief and demotion to Colonel, the result of an Inspector General's investigation made from August 18th to August 23rd, 1918. It showed Liggett and MacArthur receiving support for their actions from the 42nd Division Commander and six Rainbow Division officers. On the other hand, among those who had been close to combat with Brown for, were four officers from the 167th, along with three from the 168th, and the commander of the 151st Machine Gun Battalion from Macon, Georgia, that was attached to the 167th Infantry, all of whom testified that they saw nothing unusual or abnormal about Brown's condition, either physical or mental. This document on Brown's relief contains MacArthur's comments on the location of certain units while the battle at Croix Farm was being fought. He argued the two brigades, the 83rd and 84th, had practically the same hardships, practically the same amount of fighting, and practically the same officers. They had been subjected to exactly the same conditions as the rest of the division. Brown, in his self-defense, stated otherwise. Rainbow Division official History corroborated the testimony. Quote, as the 83rd Brigade was not in action during this time, the casualties were fairly light and only due to the shells landing in the woods which they occupied. Major Watts, surgeon of the 167th Alabama, sent regimental leaders the names of over 1,184th Brigade wounded who passed through his aid stations between 5.30 that afternoon of July 26 and 7 o'clock on the morning of July 27. Screws commanding the 167th also quantified the regiment's losses prior to July 27th, stating, Our casualties were so heavy that when I received orders to proceed to the Ark River, I had only one full-strength battalion and two half-battalions, having made the 167th practically one battalion short, 
all during the fighting on the org. No less a person than Father Duffy, in his July 27th diary, Dateline Carpool, noted that the New Yorkers were not yet in place and that the 84th Brigade had fought without them on July 26. French evidence concurred. The July 30th after-action report stated that the cars transported the 83rd Brigade north of Bazou on July 26. Thus, the 83rd Brigade could not have been engaged with the 84th in Croix Farm on July 26, and Brigadier General Brown and his 83rd Brigade had been under considerably more pressure during the Croix Farm days than the rebalance of the division. What were the reasons causing MacArthur to insist that both brigades had the same amount of fighting and that Brown was unfit to command the 84th? Did he want to reinforce the temporary appointment of himself as 84th Brigade commander? That question has been asked many times. Whatever it may have been, MacArthur was right to think that his place was in France with the rainbow rather than going back to training units at Fort Meade, Maryland. After the fighting on the heights of the Ark and a month of rest, the division went on the offensive at San Miguel on September 11, 1918. It was one of 13 divisions in the newly created 1st U.S. Army for the first all-American operation. Known to the Alabamians as a cakewalk, it was famously successful, the biggest American operation up to that time. Then the rainbow removed 60 miles to the Argonne Forest and into a much, much tougher war. Americans were pushed back as the battle opened. The 42nd Division replaced the mentally and physically exhausted U.S. 1st Division on October 11th. That storied unit, Pershing Patrol Guard, had 1,750 killed and more than 5,000 wounded in a week at the Côte de Chalion. Major General Charles P. Summerall, the newly appointed 5th Corps commander, met with his 84th Brigade commander, Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur, in the now famous meeting on October 13, 1918, at Le Forge Farm. Summerall knew what MacArthur was up against. He had been the 1st Division commander during the previous week. He moved from being 1st Division commander to being 5th Corps commander with continued responsibility for the battle. The Red One had failed in its attempt to take the Côte de Chalion. Summerall told MacArthur to take the position if it took 5,000 men. MacArthur said, all right, General, we will take it, and my name will head the list. In such a bad situation, only a person with the character of Douglas MacArthur could have made such a reply. The rainbow had gone into that Argonne battle on October 11th with regiments abreast. The American offensive was three weeks behind schedule when it jumped off on an attack on October 14th, but the division made no progress. On October 15th, commander of the 83rd Brigade, Brigadier General Michael J. Lenahan, along with the commander of his 165th New York Regiment and the regimental adjutant and the regiment's assistant adjutant, were all sacked in the middle of the battle for the Côte de Chalion. The fate of the battle then rested in the hands of the 84th Brigade entirely. 84th Brigade commanded at that point by Douglas MacArthur. Summerall had felt the 83rd could take the position. It spun out, failed, he removed everybody and handed the baton to Brigadier General MacArthur. After six days of fighting for the division, the Alabama and Iowa Regiment took Cote de Chalion with equal honors on October 16th. The 151st Georgia Machine Gun Battalion fired a million rounds in support 
of the attack that morning. The division history says it was the division's toughest battle. It was the battle that made the reputation of Douglas MacArthur. It was his destiny, the one he had always believed was in him. The 83rd Brigade had been counted on by Summerall to take the coat. Its failure created an opportunity for General MacArthur, who built the foundation of his career on taking the toughest job and doing it better. This time, he depended on his Alabama cotton growers and Iowa corn pickers. The book I've just written that is going to be published next month by the University of Alabama Press tells the story of these cotton growers from Alabama and the, and the all-citizen soldiers who served in the 167th Infantry Regiment under MacArthur. As chief of staff of the Rainbow, MacArthur handled the battle line. He accompanied and pushed Rainbow soldiers on, on patrols. He displayed a bravery that was rewarded by the admiration of his men. These archives contain many testimonials. These archives to where we are located today. Many testimonials of the deeds and citations from the numerous French and American awards he received. I asked my father, Will Fraser, if he ever saw the general in combat. His answer was yes, at about 11 in the morning of the fight at Croix Rouge. It was raining and cold. I was lying behind a log. I looked back and saw him slightly to the rear and knew him by his smashed-down hat. Once Brigade Commander MacArthur would continue to lead from the front, he earned the devotion of all of his citizen soldiers, a devotion that lasted all of his life and that he fully deserved. He wanted them honored forever and lobbied the American Battle Monuments Commission for a monument to the rainbow. In 1925, he wrote, Any spot on which the 42nd Division fought is an appropriate spot for the erection of a monument. The ground is holy and hallowed because of the events that occurred there. The 42nd Division was the outstanding National Guard Division. It was the parent from which the present federalized National Guard takes its tradition. Now we have reached a time that is 50 years after his death and 90 years after his request for a memorial to his beloved Rainbow. His wish has been finally fulfilled. Since November 2011, a memorial to the Rainbow Division has stood on the site of the Battle at Croish Farm just outside of Fuer and Tadenois. The grounds of the battlefield have not changed. It has been my privilege to erect this monument. <laughs> Save that applause, I'll tell you the rest of the story. Twenty years ago, I traveled with Dr. Monique Seifert in the Middle East, and she was a Sorbonne PhD, scholar, history, and French with an American passport. And, and I asked her if she could help me locate the place where Will had been shot up. And uh, she said, certainly. And in a short while, she told me where it was. And I met her in France. We visited the battlefield site. France doesn't change very much. The tree lines are the same now as they were then. The trails and the roads are exactly the same as they were then. But in the middle of this great battlefield, there were remnants of this fortified farmhouse and about three and a half acres owned by three different people. And I asked Dr. Seifert to buy that land, which she did. She made multiple trips to France, bought it, created a foundation, wrote the checks, but she did the work. So we owned it. Business was good. This was before Lehman collapsed in 08. And uh, I said, well, i got to do something with it. You know, I really never have done anything to memorialize the old man and his 
division and his affection for these French soldiers. And uh, Dr. Seaford hired the best sculptor in England, Jim Butler, had this beautiful monument cast in Scotland, moved it by truck down to London. It was displayed for the summer of 2011 in the forecourt of the Royal Academy. Thousands saw it. Uh, the Royal Academy had a wonderful reception. 160 people came there to honor Jim Butler and the division's monument. Then it was moved to France, erected and dedicated on November 12, 2012. And then this past year, we closed the circle by giving the art and the site to the town of Frere and Tadenois, which had been 80% destroyed but was liberated by the rainbow. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Ron, I'm looking forward to your book. How much of it does it cover the Samuel and Merzargan campaign? Oh, not much on Samuel because it really, it was just a staging area for, for the Argonne. There were 500,000 troops there. The Germans had 25,000. They were totally outnumbered. It, was a not, it wasn't a good fight. But, and then they moved the 500,000 to the Argonne with another 500,000. So we had a million men there. And Pershing had done all this big talk with the Generalissimo of Foch and, and, and then jumped off and tried to make an assault and were pushed back. It was the first retreat of the American of the AEF in France. And it was, it was terrible. It was a bad situation. So I, I kind of pick and chose. I mean, I didn't, I never have regarded. My father didn't think much of Saint-Mael. He was in the assault. He and Scotty were in the assault regiment, and the assault battalion. The assault, there were two battalions, two companies in the assault. D Company was one of them. Both those guys were there, and they always kind of dismissed it. And, I mean, I made a big deal out of Croish Farm and the fighting on the Ark, which was significant. It was strategically significant. I spent a lot of time on the Champagne. MacArthur says it was the most important of the battles. So I, I, Baccarat was a training operation. You could get yourself killed over there, but it, it, then they were prepared for the Champagne. They went there. Then they went to Croish Farm and got really blooded bad and went to the heights of the Ark and got blooded bad. We gave them a month off. They did the San Miguel. It was a cakewalk. I mean, those guys laughed about it. One of the soldiers said, I, I passed through this village which we had taken by saying boo to the Germans. Well, the Germans were so totally outnumbered that it was, it was a non-event. But when you get then to the Argonne and then you move into the, the real set piece at the Côte de Chalion, where we're talking about President Wilson's place at the peace table, and I can tell you, everybody from George Marshall, George Marshall said, Pershing does not reward failure. These guys were all scared to death of Pershing, and he was deadly serious, and he had the fifth foot on the neck of Summerall, and Summerall had his foot on the neck of Douglas MacArthur, and it was no holds barred. And the 3rd Battalion of the 167th Infantry had been up there for six days, and it was raining and cold. There was not a tent. There was no shelter. There were no raincoats. And they were losing, they were losing hunks every night. And finally, they made this terrific assault, which, by my book, it's a good story. Okay, thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.